we're not a fringe group of rebels who are here to right. uh, cause problems for the sake of politics or because we don't like certain aspects of the military or anything like that. We're speaking up because we feel obligated to, uh, because it's our oath. And on top of that, we feel obligated, right. and we'll get to the religious accommodation thing here, is, is that we feel obligated to our faith, the, the faith in God who got us in the place that we are in the first place, right here where we are. I have with me today John Bowes, First Lieutenant John Bowes. John commissioned as an officer from the United States Air Force Academy as a distinguished graduate in 2019 and is now an F-16 student pilot. Kind of. We'll talk about that in a minute. You've kind of been removed uh, from that. You were removed from the training pipeline in September of 2021 after filing a religious accommodation request for the COVID mRNA shot and has since been, since become intimately familiar with the consequences of this mandate to national security, recruiting, and the function of the military as a whole. I'm going to add in uh, my own note here and say that John is currently active duty still, and we are interviewing uh, him outside of his duty hours. He is not acting in any official capacity, and his views are his own and not those of the Defense Department. Otherwise, nobody would really be all that interested in what you have to say anyway today, John. So welcome. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me on, Matt. And yeah, just to echo that, these thoughts and opinions are purely my own, and they're not those of the Department of Defense or the United States Air Force. So uh, thanks for having me on. That's correct. Uh, 2019 Air Force Academy graduate, and like you said, uh, I was an F-16 student pilot, since been removed from the training program after some disciplinary action because I did not receive the COVID-19 vaccine. So I'm in somewhat of a, a limbo right now as I proceed towards a potential discharge. Uh, but in the meantime, I'm, I'm doing what I can to at least uh, make people aware of what's going on in the military on the side of those who are uh, hesitant to receive the COVID vaccine. Well, I'm outside of uniform, and you're in uniform still, and yet um, we're engaged in a similar line of work, and it's uh, educating people. It's uh, fighting battles, and of course, I've been in your shoes before. The the um, uh, I hate to put it this way for your sake. I'm speaking for myself. The hill I chose to die on was Marx's critical race theory, but uh, and frankly, I'm glad I'm not in your shoes right now, like so many thousands of our service members are. But before we get into the point in your story where you find yourself today, uh, having been removed from the pilot training pipeline, or not pilot training, but the F-16 training pipeline, um, talk to me a little bit about your background, uh, why you joined the military. I understand uh, your own parents, both of them, were service members. Yes, that's correct. So I, I grew up around the flying community. Uh, my father was a... Uh, F-16 or F-15C pilot, uh, just like you. And uh, my mother was a uh, instructor pilot in the T-37 back uh, in undergraduate pilot training. What base was she at? She was at, uh, she was in Lubbock. So that would be Reese Air Force Base uh, way back when that was still a base. But uh, nonetheless, she left the service when I was born, but my father stayed in and uh, was an instructor pilot in the T-38 for quite a bit of my childhood. And so Growing up in that community, I was always around fighter pilots. I was always around pilots in general. And that was really my childhood was being at roof stomps, which is where new commanders are welcomed by literally stomping on the roof. Uh, I've been around pilots uh, 
in the workplace, just hanging out as a kid and then just watching them fly and, you know, growing up on an Air Force base every day, watching uh, jets take off and hearing the sound of freedom uh, as I grew up. It's something I just developed a passion for from the very beginning of my life. Uh, I have pictures of myself in the cockpit of a T-38 uh, as a very young kid. And since then, it's been a dream come true that I got there. But I certainly dedicated pretty much my entire life to becoming a fighter pilot. That was always my mentality and my philosophy. Uh, I remember distinctly in eighth grade thinking that somehow the science fair mattered to getting into the Air Force Academy and putting all my heart and soul into it. Maybe it once did. Maybe it once did, absolutely. But I, I think at the very least, it was building habits. Uh, habits of excellence, which is you know one of the things that the uh, Air Force desires and its officers. Uh, and I lived that throughout my entire high school career. I was valedictorian in my high school. Uh, in the Air Force Academy, I was a distinguished graduate and an instructor pilot there teaching people how to fly gliders. What was your major? I was business management. Okay. Uh, perfect major for a future pilot. Absolutely. It's allowed me to... Uh, get a good education in terms of, you know, the business and, and leading people, which I think is a really important facet of being an officer. But also, I think, uh, admittedly, it allowed me a lot more time to spend in the cockpit flying. Yes. Yeah, so, yeah, that's exactly right. So how many hours as an instructor pilot at the academy did you have? I had approximately 300 hours, 200 of which were teaching people. Uh, uh, and for people that don't really appreciate how uh, significant of uh, an accomplishment that is, um, you know, I flew F-15s. I was a T-38 instructor pilot, and my first flying lessons were there at the Air Force Academy as well uh, in the glider program. And I think I accumulated a total of eight eight hours. That is uh, eight, single digit eight, um, and didn't even get to solo. And I had spent several weeks doing it, but because of bad weather and so on and so forth, I mean, you don't exactly rack up the hours very quickly in some of these uh, flying programs. But uh, so 300 hours is a, is a great accomplishment before you leave the academy and go off to pilot training. So then you, you leave the academy uh, with a degree in business management. And tell me about your, um, your uh, flying uh, career path from there. So after that, I had a brief stint uh, in IFT is what it's called now. It's essentially an initial flight training uh, where students just get about 15 to 20 hours in a motorized aircraft. I think we were flying DA-20s, which are it was great for me because it's basically a glider with a motor. So I had quite a bit of experience mm -hmm. in gliders already. It felt very familiar to me. I uh, did extremely well in that program and then proceeded on to undergraduate pilot training where you accumulate about 200 hours uh, across two different airframes. The first is the uh, T-6 Texan II. Uh, it's a turboprop jet engine aircraft that uh, it's very fun to fly. It's, it feels like a little sports car, like a little muscle car. Uh, and you can get a lot of maneuverability out of them. And, and they're just they're really enjoyable airframes to fly. And that's kind of where you, you make it uh, as a pilot. For most pilots uh, in the pilot training program, that's where they split off to either the T-1, which is training heavier aircraft, or the T-38, which is training fighter aircraft. Uh, I was fortunate to be at Euro-NATO Joint Jet Pilot Training, which is uh, one of the more hard-to-get-into pilot training programs mm -hmm. where you it train sure with is. NATO allies and you're guaranteed a T-38. So the beauty of InJet, which is what it's called, uh, is that it's focused on training fighter pilots from day one in the T-6 as well as in the T-38. So uh, I felt at heaven uh, in that place because you were surrounded by fighter pilots all the time. And even when you were flying the initial training aircraft, there was always this mentality of how can we translate that into making you a better fighter pilot. Uh, so I had a blast and I did really well and then proceeded on to the T-38, which is really for the first time in my life, lighting an afterburner really felt like my dream was finally coming true. Uh, and in the T-38, which is where we're kind of practicing the uh, administrative aspects of getting to and from the airspace is really the focus of 
to the T-38 phase, but at the same time also teaching how to fly in the weather uh, to pick up tactical formation, which is a formation that uh, we use in the modern military and the uh, combat air forces. And really just teaching you kind of the philosophy and mindset of flying a supersonic jet aircraft. Uh, so you leave there and go where? So after that, I graduated out of Injet and uh, proceeded immediately to uh, Introduction to Fighter, Fighter Fundamentals, or IFF is what it's called. Did you do that at the same location? I did. I did that at Shepard Air Force Base yeah. in Injet, yes, sir. And uh, that was a blast. That was really where we started actually fighting with a jet, with a T-38, uh, doing turning maneuvers, uh, actually pulling the trigger, although there's not a gun on the T-38, uh, practicing dropping bombs, and a whole plethora of other different ideas. And that's where you kind of get bred the fighter pilot mentality. And that is where I really, really started to fall in love with being a fighter pilot because it felt real. And I was surrounded by fighter pilots. I felt totally at home because half of the instructors were just like my dad. Uh, but instead of getting debriefed on how to clean my room, it was actually getting debriefed on flying fighters. Uh, and then from there, I proceeded to Holloman Air Force Base, where I'm at right now, to start the uh, F-16 training course. Okay. So when did you arrive at Holloman? And was and when you showed up, the reason I ask, I have in mind, you know, the timing of the mandate uh, to be vaccinated because I separated from active duty last September, uh, about the time you were removed from the training pipeline, and I wrote my book, which got me fired in May of this past year, and uh, spent three months under investigation with the Air Force Inspector General's office, and I remember during that time specifically. There was discussion about the imminent potential of mandating the uh, the shot for service members, and, uh, and but and and but I had just been removed from command, and so I, I wasn't as close to that issue. Although I've paid very close attention since then, so talk to me th through that timeline of you showing up and when this mandate uh, takes effect, and the kind of the path uh, from there. Right. Absolutely. So I showed up right before 4th of July to Holloman Air Force Base, which is, for those that don't know, in Alamogordo, New Mexico, kind of a dusty old middle of nowhere town uh, with a lot of beautiful scenery, though, and uh, began the training program pretty much immediately after sometime around early August. And so I was, I was in the program for about a month before on September 21st, I was told basically to apply for a religious accommodation uh, or get the shot. And, and with that also came the fact that if you do apply for a religious accommodation, you're going to be put on administrative hold, which is not a removal from the training program per se, but it just essentially means that I couldn't fly, I couldn't participate in simulators, and I couldn't participate in academics. Uh, so I was left in limbo around September 21st, which was almost 10, 10 months ago now. Uh, and I've been at Holloman for about a year total. And you've never been put back on flying status since that time that you were removed from flying no. status. Is that true? That's true. Are there any other uh, student pilots that were in the F-16 pipeline with you that were also removed from flying status, or are you the only one in your unit? I was the only one uh, in my unit. I believe briefly there were a few others within uh, my command and my wing, uh, but they since got the COVID vaccine um, under the, the kind of the coercive pressure that I think a lot of us felt. Sure. You know, I talked to so many service members, even still, uh, about a number of issues, but the COVID uh, shot mandate comes up more often than not. And uh, many of those that I speak with are calling uh, or emailing because they're looking to be put in touch with um, an attorney or being plugged into some network uh, that might be useful to them as they navigate this. But for many months there, about the same time you were going through this, whether it was uh, a young officer or an older officer uh, that I was speaking with or a young enlisted uh, service member or an older enlisted service member, 
all of them felt isolated in their particular unit or base that they were at because they knew they were really one of a few or one of a half dozen or so maybe in their local community. And every time I spoke with those service members, I tried to convey to them, look, there's literally thousands of you who are, and this is after a period where I think initially at the time I left the service, maybe like there were still 35% of the service that had chosen of their own volition not to receive the vaccine. But then, you know, with each passing week and the pressure and the discussion about this, it was like whittling away. Now there were five more percent that got the shot. Now there were five more percent. And finally, it came down to, I'm guessing, but you can correct me because you'll know better, probably maybe two to three percent of our armed forces across all branches of the military had, and that was many, many thousands of people had chosen to dig in their heels and say, no, this is against my principles for whatever reason, whether it was religious or medical or, or some other reason. And I tried to convince people, you're not alone. There are, there are literally thousands of you out there, and you need to maybe somehow connect and uh, start to brainstorm together and take encouragement and uh, build morale. But I came to know John, uh, I think it was back in January of this year, and uh, we've never, you know, we've talked offline just a little bit. But I came to understand um, that you have been a part of uh, a larger network in the pilot community, uh, so that you were, you were very well aware from an early stage that there were many others like you, even outside of your base. Talk to me about the efforts you've been involved in. Uh, I know I might be going out of order that you'd like to tell your story, but I'm, I'm really interested. I want to make sure we talk about this network uh, as much as you're able to. And then that and the religious accommodation request itself, what's involved in that? Um, are people giving the same reasons for in, in those religious accommodation requests, largely speaking, for why it is they're not wanting to get the shot, or is that extremely diversified? And so let's start with, you know, talk to me about the number of pilots specifically, uh, because I'm really focused on this issue, issue right now. How many pilots are there that you're aware of that are in the same boat you are, and, and have you been networking with them? Absolutely. Yeah, I, I will say that the pilot community is extremely tight-knit. Uh, and, and we all communicate with each other, Matt, I'm sure you know that. And, and with that, you know, pilots, not, we don't just hang out within our own units. We change bases every two to three years. We go to exercises where uh, you have hundreds of other pilots together training like Operation Red Flag out in uh, Nellis Air Force Base. Uh, we fly with other units uh, to compete with each other to some degree, but also to train and learn our weaknesses. So the pilot community, everyone kind of knows each other. It's very small, although it's a very large community, it's also small. Uh, and so with that, we all communicate with each other. We all talk. And so it's pretty easy to figure out who are the people uh, that are kind of in the same shoes as you pretty rapidly and start to chat with each other and learn things from each other uh, and figure things out like religious accommodations, which we'll get to in just a second. So in uh, getting to that and building a little bit of a network, uh, I've learned about more than 700 pilots that are currently fighting this mandate. Uh, it's, it's an astounding number. And the national security implications of losing 700 pilots right now it's pretty severe, and we can get into that a little more if you want. Uh, but at the very least, it's no small number. Yeah, and I do want. So we'll, we'll, we'll continue to drive on that point, but go ahead. If you want to get outside of the minutia of just pilots, I did the math yesterday, uh, and you were speaking to thousands of service members. Uh, that's a low ball. It's actually, uh, according to the DOD's mm -hmm. own number, 136,490 individual service members that are not getting and the be clear about that are not getting so I I'm I'm astonished at that number. In fact, I had no idea it was that high. So does that include active duty and like guard and reserve? 
yeah, it's active duty guard and reserve. And there's about 300,000 plus that are partially vaccinated, which begs the question uh, at this point in the mandate, why are so many people partially vaccinated? They should be fully vaccinated by now, according to the DOD's timelines, especially in active duty. Uh, so when you look at those numbers, about you know 400,000 people who, according to the DOD's own policies, are not fully vaccinated and therefore are um, a risk to themselves and potentially others, at least uh, at the stance of, of many medical professionals, uh, you have to wonder, where are those service members and what are the implications of those service members are removed from service? You know, um, I just spoke uh, here locally in Idaho just, uh, yesterday at a um, uh, county Republican women's forum uh, at a luncheon that they hosted. And one of the things that often comes up when I speak, I, I want to convey to the American people that their tax dollars go to incentivization of pilots, fighter pilots, specifically in the Air Force, I know very well, but across the DOD to incentivize their continued service. And in the Air Force, I think it's about the 12-year point where they say, hey, people are likely to bounce their pilot commitments up now. They might go fly for the airlines or get rid of, they, they might rid their lives of the busy ops tempo and go do something else. And so taxpayer dollars are used to incentivize their sticking around until 20 by usually giving them upwards of 300000 or more dollars as a signing bonus over the next eight years to stay in. And I, I think that maybe that's community dependent or you know which platform you're flying. But for the last several years, we've already experienced what General Goldfein called a, a, a fighter pilot shortage, or I think it was just a pilot shortage in the Air Force alone. He was the former chief of staff of the Air Force. Uh, so I can't imagine that in the last couple of years, We've emerged from the crisis and our shortage of pilots, and now we're in a better readiness stance than we were several years ago. And I have to ask the question, how is it in your view? Are we still in that crisis even before the COVID shot mandate came out? And how is it that losing potentially upwards of 700 or more pilots right now might impact our readiness as a force? Right. Yeah, that's a great question. So you're right. The taxpayers are, are literally funding their own national security. And I think at the very least, the taxpayers deserve some answers and some data. And I know there's some data presented to Congress recently uh, from pilots specifically. Uh, and those the 700 pilots or so got together and submitted a report to Congress uh, with a sample of 357 pilots. And they gathered data on how much they cost to the taxpayer, what kind of flying hours they have how many years of service they've been in, and some metrics like, are they instructor pilots? Do they contribute to the nuclear mission? Uh, and a whole bunch of other different data points. And so you're right, the, the crisis, the 1,500 pilot shortage, which General Goldfein called a crisis, has increased. It's 1,650 is the last number I've heard. So it's increased by 150 at least. And I know in fiscal year 21, the budget request uh, stated they were short 2,100 pilots. Uh, so it's hard to say where exactly that is. That's just an Air Force number, correct? Yeah, 1,650 is just the Air Force. Did you watch the um, Secretary of the Air Force's interview with the Heritage Foundation from a couple of days ago? I sure did. Okay. So I can't speak from experience. I haven't yet watched it, but I've heard about, uh, and I've only seen uh, written correspondence about the interview, but I think he was asked about concerns about readiness. Am I wrong? That's right. He did. Did he acknowledge that in your understanding? I'm not asking, by the way, again, I'll say it here, uh, I, I told John before this interview I could have a knack for making him uncomfortable with some of the questions I might ask him. So uh, in no way am I asking him in any way to criticize uh, senior leaders, but I'm simply after some understanding of the facts. And is, it, is it your recollection that in that interview, did he 
Did he acknowledge that we've got a readiness issue as a result of our current policies, or does he, is it the Air Force's view that, in fact, we don't yet have a readiness issue? I'll put it that way. Absolutely. So I think the Air Force as a whole is is uh, aware that we are not getting the training and quantity that we need uh, in order to be a fully competent and ready force, especially in the fighter community. So one of the stats that was thrown out in that interview with the Secretary of the Air Force uh, was the number of sorties per month that pilots are getting. Um, and we are, really there are tiers. There is the tier of, you know, close to 12 sorties a month where pilots are actually exponentially increasing in their skills down to like eight to 10 is where they're basically mission capable. And then there's a layer down to like six sorties, six, five, five, six sorties a month uh, where they're basically just maintaining their basic competencies to just get the jet from point A to point B. Uh, and right now we're sitting right at that, about five sorties per month on average for the fighter community. Uh, and so we're, we're extremely short. It's a on, bummer. Yeah, it is. It the, is. Absolutely. Yeah, no fighter, no fighter community pilot wants to fly once a week. No, not at all. Uh, and so with that, I, I think, you know, there's metrics like that. I think there's metrics like uh, the recruiting issues that are going to be coming up. I believe the Secretary of Defense, or excuse me, the Secretary of the Air Force did say uh, that he expected 2023 to be a tough recruiting year and 2022 to be the same. And uh, I know at least right now on the enlisted side of the house, the Air Force has had its worst recruiting numbers since 1999 um, this year. Uh, and of course, you can attribute that to covid uh, you can attribute that to a lot of different factors, but the simple fact is that recruiting uh, seems to be a little bit down. Well, you know, that won't be any surprise to the American people. It just won't. Um, and I, frankly, it shouldn't be a surprise to our senior military leaders either, um, regardless of their political persuasion. Um, I just had a conversation yesterday with uh, a classmate of mine from the Air Force Academy, female. Uh, she was an acquisitions officer for the Air Force. Um, she's in the athletic department uh, there right now. It was a track and field coach and has been involved in recruiting efforts at the academy and uh, explained to me that she recently, in the aftermath of the Afghanistan withdrawal and some of the politics that you saw uh, play out after that and the inquiries that our House Armed Services Committee and Senate Armed Services Committee were doing with uh, the Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, and um, the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, she had five female athletes withdraw their interest in attending the Air Force Academy, both because of their own uh, disincentivized, um, uh, let me put it differently, both because they had lost interest in serving in the military in the result of this politicized environment, but also because their parents had uh, concerns about what they were seeing in the media. And, uh, and seeing, but not just because of the reporting of the media, but because of what they perceived as coming from the senior military uh, leaders and appointees. I want to circle back to something. Oh, and by the way, that, that girl is now um, two months shy of retirement, uh, this athletic director, uh, uh, civilian employee. I'm not going to say her name uh, yet, although she's going to be on Fox and Friends tomorrow morning. Um, but they are they're firing her from her job for the same issue and boat that you're in right now. And it's that she's chosen to not be vaccinated. She's a gold star widow, lost her husband, uh, on a deployment back. in I think it was 2013. And, uh, I'm disappointed personally to see so many good, decent, and better, more than that, um, hardworking 
service members be kicked to the curb, so to speak, because they have a conviction that this is, this is not something they want to do. You said, you mentioned a letter that was um, put together by pilots, the, the pilot community um, that was sent to Congress, I think is how you put it. Uh, are you able to say which offices that was sent to? What was the contents of that letter? Is the House and Senate Armed Services Committee aware of the contents of that letter? And, and when was that sent? Uh, well, before I get to that, I, I will speak to uh, the individual you're just talking about. Uh, I did meet her at the academy. I knew her. Uh, she was beloved oh, yeah. at the academy. Uh, and just, just, you know, as a gold star widow and as an instructor and a leader at the academy, she was just such a valuable asset. Uh, her story was inspiring. Um, and just the example of resilience and courage and bravery that she, she put out to cadets is, is something I still remember. And there's, I'm sure you know, a lot of speakers at the academy. Um, some stand out right. and some don't, but I remember her very specifically. Uh, and so it, it's really a shame. And hopefully, hopefully the academy changes their mind on that and, and chooses to keep her. But in regards to this letter, uh, I'm aware that it was sent to members of Congress. Um, I know that at least some members of the House and, Armed Ser- House and Senate Armed Services Committee did receive that. I'm not certain exactly which, um, and at the very least, Congress has been ginning up a little more support from what I've seen, uh, finally, as we get a little closer to the midterms, but it's certainly not enough. And so, if anything, uh, I would encourage members of the House and Senate to start speaking up about this, because I think a lot of people think that this issue is not pertinent anymore, but it certainly is. It's very real, and it's affecting service members. Uh, was it sent to both Republican and Democrat uh, members of the House and Senate Armed Services Committee, or in your, what in your understanding was it just sent to Republican uh, congressmen? Do you know? I know it's been teased to a few Democrats, from what I've heard. Uh, I'm not exactly certain which ones, but I, I would hope so. Okay, at the very least. So what what's in this letter? I mean, roughly speaking, is there a mention from the pilot community of their concern over our impending readiness crisis because of the mandate? Absolutely. That's the whole point of the letter in itself is, is to make uh, Congress and hopefully the American people, if it gets out, aware of on a point by point basis down to like actual no kidding data, uh, what's going to happen potentially if we do lose these pilots. And so just to give you a couple of the numbers from that that I think are most impactful uh, those 357, keep in mind, that's just 357 pilots. That's not even half of the number that's probably out there. There's probably a lot more than 700. I'm just aware of 700. But anyway, those 357 pilots alone are worth $7.8 billion in taxpayer money. $7.8 billion is an astounding number. And that's just money that's going to go down the drain and be totally lost if these pilots are removed. And on top of that, these pilots on average have 14 years of service. So these are not inexperienced pilots like myself, unfortunately. These are experienced pilots of the major to lieutenant colonel pay grade who have thousands of flying hours, who have tons of experience in the jet. They have the airmanship that's required. And on top of that, 69% of the sample was instructor pilots. So it could be easy to say like, oh, 350 pilots, we lose them. No big deal. We'll just train more ones. That's not how it works because we need the experience as our force gets younger and younger already. Uh, mostly being lost to the airlines or other career fields. Uh, We need that experience to remain in the Air Force to retrain the pilots that might actually replace them. Uh, And so if we ever want to catch up on this shortage, we at least believe uh, that we need to keep these extremely valuable aviators to catch up on what we've already lost in in the decades-long likely problem that we have ahead of us. Uh, What percentage of those pilots were uh, connected to the nuclear enterprise? About 19%. 
So I, I want to emphasize uh, this point. Now we're talking about a smaller sample, and the and the numbers are dated because that letter was sent last year sometime to our House and Senate Armed Services Committee representatives. Now some of them, I don't know all who's received that letter, but I'm under the impression that some have. In fact, why is it that uh, I'm not asking? I'm asking this rhetorically, John. Uh, and, and the American people should ask themselves this question. You've got elected officials, and I don't care what their political party, but especially if, uh, well, I'll, I'll keep it that way. I, I don't care what their political party. If the pilot community writes a letter directly to Congress outlining their concerns about an impending readiness crisis and you, get, you don't get any response, you don't get any action, you don't get any immediate attention. We're failing the American people. We're failing our military service members. Uh, and, uh, you know, John, I'm not even going to ask you to agree or disagree with that because I I'm guessing we're aligned, but it doesn't matter. And it's my view that I'm, I'm stating. They're failing our, our military service members. And the fact that they're picking it up now is great. But certain things require immediate action, and this is one of them. And we're at a point right now where our service members are in a position where they're going to lose a great deal that they've spent their lives serving for. They're going to lose their pensions in some cases. I, in fact, you mentioned, you know, on average, they have 14 years of service. I just spoke yesterday with a, a, an 06, a Colonel Air Force A-10 pilot, who requested retirement recently. She's a phenomenal officer. She has a PhD uh, on the Air Force's dime. She's one of the best leaders I've ever met. Uh, and again, because she's not yet gone public, uh, I won't mention uh, her name, although I'd love to chat with her on the show sometime. And I know there's a lot of senior military leaders that are listening to the show. She requested retirement, and the response that came back was, we're sorry, we can't approve that because you're mission critical. And then they gave her an order last week, I think it was, that you've got 10 days to get the uh, COVID shot or we will forcefully separate you without your pension. She's at 21 years of service, 06, phenomenal officer. She's about as good as it gets, in my opinion, and based on my experience. I can, that, that really upsets me. I know that everyone's case is just as important, but the talent and, like you said, the money that we put into people, how can you kick those people by the wayside? Especially, it's, it's one thing if you're working off of the knowledge we had a year and a half ago about this, or a year ago, we know far too much now. Uh, I won't get into, well, we know far too much now to be so stupid with our uh, military forces. So let, let's go back to um, where you're at now um, in this process. So you've submitted a religious accommodation request. What does that entail? And what was the process uh, that, I hear some jets there. It's a good sound. Yeah, it is actually. I live right um, underneath the pattern. Sorry about the noise. Um, that's all right. Our, our listeners and viewers need to hear it. Um, tell me where you're at then in the process. When did you submit your religious accommodation request? Was it back then in September? And what's been the, the process for you uh, legally, so to speak, or administratively? Uh, and and where's, where are you at in that process now? Absolutely. So uh, I, w I, w I do want to address real quick what you mentioned about uh, this particular 06 A10 driver uh, and, and how she you know, received this, this order to get it after applying for separation and then basically being, just being told you're going to get separated anyway, uh, is that's all too common. I know so many service members who have applied for voluntary separation, not because they want to get out, because most all of us want to stay and continue serving. 
but just because they felt forced to, because the choice was when a religious accommodation is denied, either to apply for voluntary separation or get the vaccine. And, and so a lot of service members felt, okay, like, well, I don't want to get any sort of discharge characterization that's lower than honorable, so I'll request this voluntary separation. And so many of them, you're exactly right, were denied because they were considered mission critical or their career field is critically undermanned and they need to stay in. Uh, and then they get that separation, they get that voluntary separation request back denied. And then if they don't get the vaccine, they get separated anyway. So the DOD, I don't understand. I'm confused, really, most importantly, about where the stance is, because there's so many different examples of, of how, you know, we're in a national security crisis, but yet uh, us as pilots and service members are somehow disposable. I don't really understand that. In fact, Senator Einhoff sent a request to Secretary Austin for metrics very similar to the ones that we submitted to the House and Senate Armed Services Committee, things like pilot flying hours, uh, costs of training, uh, and things like that. And he received a response, and it said that he believed that the attrition would be nominal. Uh, and so on top of that, the Marine Office of Legislative Affairs responded to a congressional inquiry stating that they didn't believe that the current service members in the Marine Corps being separated were a detriment to national security, and then went on to say that no pilots or special operators had been discharged. Now, I can't speak for the Office of Legislative Affairs in the Marine Corps, but I can say that that does, at least to me, come across as an implication that if those members were to be discharged, we would be talking about a national security issue. And simply put, in the Marine Corps, there have been a number of pilots that have been notified of discharge, or at least on the road to being discharged. I know of one Cobra pilot who already went through his board of inquiry, which is a uh, judicial process, if you will, not necessarily, but I guess due process would be the better way to put that, uh, for getting separated. And he was chosen to be separated by a board of his peers. I know of 12 student pilots at NAS Pensacola who have been notified of separation. I know of two F-35 pilots that have been notified of separation. And I know of an F-18 pilot that's been notified of separation. So wow. the OLA for the Marine Corps is saying, is saying two different things. And I would hope that eventually a clarification would come out. But at the very least, um, I think it needs to be acknowledged and at least investigated by the Department of Defense as to how exactly bad this issue is going to be if these service members get discharged. Well, that's right. And uh, in addition to those that you've mentioned, I'm aware of uh, far more still that are in a similar boat. They're, they're being notified of their uh, pending separations. Uh, one of the things I've uh, also uh, learned, even among pilots, and I'm specifically referring to pilots here, even among pilots who have received the vaccine, okay, uh, some of whom were my peers, lieutenant colonels below the zone, they're early promoters. They're, command, they're in command right now. They've been offered promotion. Uh, they've been offered to attend the next uh, senior developmental education level uh, of, of education that the Air Force is going to offer them. Many of them are turning their senior developmental education uh, opportunities down so that they can separate because they're tired of the politicized environment. It's not, just, it's not a COVID vaccine issue alone for them, uh, but they, they really are uncomfortable is a great way to put it with the direction that they see the service is headed and they have a question to ask and answer and to act on and it's do they want to keep their families planted in an, in this environment and uh for many of them and they're good people and and i mean it uh one of my friends that the sky is the limit uh for him uh quite literally and um he's he's done and uh, he's already informed his chain of command uh, of that. And um, they're quite disappointed because we invest 
a lot of time and energy into these people developing leaders of character. Um, do your parents, how do your parents feel about uh, your current path and your decision? No, they're completely supportive of me. Uh, and they share a lot of the same beliefs that I share. And, you know, I think that just comes from the simple fact that uh, I attribute my values and my faith, uh, both for my parents uh, and for my time at the academy, uh, to where I stand today. Uh, you know, the academy spent so much time teaching us about our, our dedication to the Constitution, our dedication to our oath as officers, uh, our dedication to speaking up when something doesn't seem right or when there's a threat to our country. And that's exactly what I'm doing. That's exactly what I swore to do. And that's exactly what these service members are doing. You know, we're not a fringe group of rebels who are here to right. uh, cause problems for the sake of politics or because we don't like certain aspects of the military or anything like that. We're speaking up because we feel obligated to, uh, because it's our oath. And on top of that, we feel obligated, right. and we'll get to the religious accommodation thing here, is, is that we feel obligated to our faith, the, the faith in God who got us in the place that we are in the first place right here where we are and that that's it that's that's all we're going for and that's that's i'm i'm sure across the board for all 136,000 service members who are not vaccinated right now i almost guarantee you that's the case because i know so many that feel the exact same way that i do and so no we're not here to be rebellious we're here to continue serving otherwise we wouldn't be putting up this much effort into trying to stay in it would be very easy just to simply say no i refuse the vaccine and that's it i'm out I can get out, I can get my discharge and move on with my life. And that's not the case. We want to continue serving because we're passionate about the Constitution, we're passionate about our oaths, and we're passionate about this country. What will you do if the grid goes down? How will you survive without food, water, and heat? Introducing One Sunrise, the first of its kind in massive on-demand power, instantly available at any residential, commercial, or remote location. Power your home, your office, your EV, your RV, your farm, your cabin, your bug-out bunker, your glamping weekend with the family, or all of them. Bring instant power to any situation, anywhere. Non-toxic, cobalt and lead-free, as well as fire-resistant, One Sunrise mobile power stations are made to run in over 100-degree temps or at negative 20. For when the grid goes down, there's One Sunrise. Visit onesunrise.com to learn how you can prepare today for no power tomorrow. Well, I'm glad you're fighting, and uh, the American people are glad that you're fighting, uh, because that's what they expect of you. Uh, what about your peers in the F-16 community? Are they supportive of your decision, despite theirs being different? I'll give credit where it's due, at least uh, at my squadron. People have been pretty supportive. Um, no one's been outwardly harassing me or ridiculing me. I don't feel necessarily outed. Uh, I get a lot of people who look at me a little weird, and I get a lot of people, maybe even more so, who look at me like they wish they did it as well. And so well, at the very you're least, I've had too. people I mean, you got, you got this uh, creepy mustache, and you are a little bit weird. <laughs> Maybe I'm a face for radio, I don't know. It's not March. Hey, if you're listening to this interview and not watching it on YouTube or Rumble, you need to come on YouTube and, and check out John's mustache. Uh, did the Air Force just change the regs? I think I saw something about that. Oh, no, Space Force just extended the width uh, of the mustache rig. They've like allowed an extra quarter inch or half inch or something uh, on the mustache to look just like yours. You're primed to transition into the Space Force. Maybe so. Maybe so. I'll follow after you. Maybe, maybe not. They probably won't take you. Let me ask you one more question. I want to read you something. Uh, and then, so actually, I should ask you two questions. I, I was going to say, what is the, what's next for you? What are the next steps uh, that you're aware of? Um, are you taking legal action? You know, talk, talk 
to us about what you're currently involved in and what your expectations are in the months ahead. And then um, tell me what I'm not asking that I should be that the American people maybe ought to be aware of if there's a direction you'd like to take this or talk about something that I've not necessarily teed up for you. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Okay. So I think I kind of answered your question that I, I failed to answer earlier in talking about the religious accommodation process and kind of gets at how I got to where I am right now. So I followed that religious accommodation in September 21st of uh, 2021. Uh, and with that is, is a whole long process, essentially granting you the due process that you deserve for this religious accommodation. And so when you apply for it, you essentially create a letter of intent detailing your beliefs. Uh, you get interviewed by a chaplain. Your package then goes to a religious resolution team, which is a team of individuals on the base who review your package and kind of get the command recommendation on what should be approved or not approved. So to speak. So to speak, exactly. I had to throw so to speak in there for the fighter pilot listening <laughs> <Absolutely>. audience. <laughs> Shame on me for not including it. But if you don't if you don't know what I'm talking about, that's good. Absolutely. So what that religious resolution team is looking at and what every level of the religious accommodation process is looking at is three things. And that is that is the service member's belief sincerely held? And that is the only thing the service member has the burden of proof to provide. Is, is this religious belief of theirs something that's actually serious and something that's actually real? And it's very hard to say that a belief is not sincere. And, you know, there's a lot of law that I'm not going to pretend to understand that basically makes it so that if you can really create a basis of faith, even a light one, you're probably good to go and your beliefs are considered sincere. Who gets to determine that then in the Air Force? That's going to be the approval authority. So at both levels, both at my initial religious accommodation request and my appeal, it was determined that my beliefs were sincere. Uh, and so that's a key factor when you look at the other two parts of this religious accommodation process, which is, okay. is there a compelling government interest and are there lesser restrictive means? And what that essentially means is, does the government have a compelling interest with which they have the burden of proof to provide that this service member's beliefs have to be burdened because of national security or good order and discipline? And are there some options that we can accommodate these service members uh, in order to not have them get the vaccine, i.e. lesser restrictive means? And so uh, that's all examined. And so when I've received my initial denial for my religious accommodation, I was told that there was a compelling government interest and that there were no lesser restrictive means. And the same was echoed in my appeal, which was denied. And what's interesting about that is that uh, I wonder why there wouldn't be, why there would be a compelling government interest because the DOD has approved thousands of medical exemptions where these service members are allowed to exist within the military. That's right. Yet there's not, I, I somehow cannot be unvaccinated in the military. And on top of that, I've already demonstrated lesser restrictive means because I've existed within my squadron without a mask, without testing in closer contact than I would have been if I were so busy flying that I would be isolating myself to the point of studying all the time. So I'm seeing more people and I'm interacting with more people and I'm not wearing a mask and I'm not doing anything. And yet I'm not being told to telework or do anything else like that. And so many other service members are in the exact same position where uh, for the next year, which is probably going to be my timeline for getting discharged, I'm going to be unvaccinated uh, and within my squadron. So I, I really just don't understand right. why there wouldn't be those two factors. I shouldn't say you'll get a kick out of this, but uh, you won't be surprised by it. I have a friend who's not a Christian, is an atheist, uh, who's opposed to the vaccine mandate, and uh, he knew he couldn't use the religious accommodation request path 
that you and so many thousands, many, many thousands of others have. And so uh, he used a request for ethical veganism. And uh, what do you know? It's approved. So he's still in. Uh, so, it, you know, it's, it's really, it, it shows and proves the point that, um, what, did, what did you say numbers two and three were? Some compelling government interest? What was the exact language? So is there a compelling government interest and are there lesser restrictive means to accommodate? Right. So uh, if you're an ethical vegan, hey, listen up. If you're not yet booted, uh, maybe if you haven't already submitted a religious accommodation request, try your hand at atheistic ethical veganism because the service is probably still interested in keeping you around. Um, okay, go ahead and continue. You mentioned an appeal, too. So what is the appeal uh, and what does that entail? Uh, and do you have an attorney help you with that? Uh, do service members or pilots have attorneys helping with them, them with that? Or is that something you guys uh, kind of do on your own without legal help? Uh, you're, of course, entitled to use an attorney, and some service members have. I personally did not. Uh, I felt that my research was sufficient. And so uh, I believe my appeal, when I was denied my initial request, my appeal was somewhere around 10 to 12 pages without attachments. And I received a one-page denial back from the appellate authority, which is the Air Force Surgeon General. Uh, and in that appeal denial, uh, I was told that there is a compelling government interest and there are no lesser restrictive means and there was no proof provided for either. So I'm not really certain. Yeah, it's just if there's the burden of proof on the United States government to show these two items, uh, I don't necessarily understand how just stating it really is, is uh, something that we deserve, especially with all the work and effort we put in and the fact that they deserve individual consideration. And I think here's something I really want to make very apparent to everyone, is that there's a very, very big difference between an exemption and an accommodation. Okay, yeah, talk to us about that. Absolutely. So an exemption is allows an individual to exist outside of a policy that's written, i.e. a medical exemption. An accommodation is subject to the policy of the nation, the Constitution of the United States. And I think that's the best way to put it, is that uh, this religious accommodation is protected under the Constitution, the First Amendment, and under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Uh, and this is codified in law. And so uh, it's, it's a pretty serious process. And it's something that I think service members are, are due a little more consideration on in terms of uh, how much effort they put in and what their beliefs really are. Hey, that's a, an excellent point, And I'm glad you brought that up. Let me ask you another question that's related to this. Um, do you think, now talk to me about informed consent. It's a phrase people are hearing. Uh, what does that mean? Uh, and do you believe it's possible for service members to, um, to even have the, do they have the opportunity to give informed consent at the moment on uh, the mRNA shot? Yeah, absolutely. So in, informed consent is something that uh, service members are entitled to uh, if they're receiving an emergency use authorized vaccine. And that's codified in law under 10 U.S. Code 1107A. I won't get too in depth with that because I'm not a lawyer. Uh, but really, just to put it in the most simplistic terms, is uh, a service member has a right to accept or refuse a vaccination that is under emergency use authorization uh, based on the facts that they're given. So what is under emergency use authorization right now with regards to the mRNA vaccine? Talk, talk to us. I know there's plenty of shows that talk about this. Uh, they, they have for many months, but let's, let's cover that just briefly. Um, is, is the shot for our service members um, uh, offered under emergency use authorization right now? Uh, what is the shot that they're offered? All the shots available to the Department of Defense right now 
our emergency use authorization. And that's really a key point for so many of us is that almost all of us have religious objections to the vaccine. But at the same time, if that's not enough, there's also legal concerns. I will say this, Secretary Austin's memo ordering service members to get the vaccine is lawful. It is because it mandates a FDA licensed vaccine. I think the common term is used uh, incorrectly, though, is FDA approved. FDA approved means nothing. Um, FDA licensed is the proper term. Uh, but that an FDA licensed vaccine is community or spike vax. Uh, and there's so many different things we could get into that we're probably not going to in terms of is there a license number on the vial? Uh, what is the national drug code on the vial? So many other things. All of these vaccines that are available to service members are emergency use authorized, which is patently different than an FDA licensed vaccine. And so because of that, this order is not something we're able to comply with right now. It's not something we can execute, uh, simply put, because we are entitled to informed consent under law for emergency use authorized vaccines. And there are no vaccines that fit the order from Secretary Austin right now that are available to us. And that's been proven. Mm. That's been proven in boards right. of inquiry for it service has. members. I know of three different discharge boards where a board of these service members' peers determined that there is no FDA licensed vaccine available to them. And therefore, they did not do any wrong by not getting the vaccine. So it's being proven in due process and what is essentially a legal process, although it's not, uh, in, the, in the Department of Defense. And I think people are starting to realize that. But it's going to be too late if we don't start taking action right now in protecting people like myself and the tens of thousands of other service members who are in the same shoes as myself. There was a, um, I want to say she was an army doctor, active duty, maybe a lieutenant colonel, uh, who many, many months ago uh, shared, uh, perhaps leaked publicly, that she had to uh, ground some pilots. Uh, who had been vaccinated, and and um, but I only I might have those details wrong. Do you know what I'm referring to when I mention that? And do you know who that doctor was? Is it the same doctor that then leaked the um, uh, is it DMEDS? No, what's what's the um, acronym I'm missing for the medical uh, adverse? It's like the VARES for the DoD, right? It's the D. Are these the same person? DMED I, I'm not certain if it's the same person. I believe you're speaking about Lieutenant Colonel Teresa Long, who's is testified with oh, uh, yeah, Senator that, Ron Johnson. So I'm aware of her. Uh, is that the same person that had earlier said she was having to ground pilots because of the vaccine? I'm not certain, to be honest with you. Uh, to, okay. to, and to be completely frank, uh, in terms of the, uh, the vaccine injury front, um, I am aware of pilots who have received myocarditis um, and a whole, a whole plethora of other ailments that have been proven by doctors to be as a result of the vaccine. So that's, that's a whole different can of worms to talk about. Yeah, it is. Let me just ask you kind of anecdotally. So are you aware of uh, pilots who have received the vaccine who have been removed from flying status at some point uh, as a result of the vaccine? Yes, I am. Okay. Well, that sucks. I mean, it really sucks that we've got a policy that purges people that haven't had it, but whose hearts are still healthy. And we're grounding pilots who have had it, because now they're becoming unhealthy. I mean, the American people are astonished at this kind of stupid decision-making. My words, not John's. Um, yeah, this is, uh, for the listener, this is a small part, but a very important part, of an ongoing, developing national security crisis that is in the making of our own making. And uh, there's nothing that can tear a country apart and its national security apparatus apart like terrible policy as if it were policy that was designed uh, 
to do precisely what it's doing. Um, let me read something to you, John. Well, first, last question. Are, is there something I'm not asking you that I should be asking you um, that we haven't covered or that you'd like to say? And then I'm going to read something to you. Yeah, sure thing. So I, I think I have one more thing that I, I, I want to make really important because I've heard this counter argument uh, to so many service members so many times before. And that is that you're required to take 17 other vaccines or you're required to take vaccines or you have taken vaccines that have fetal cells in them. Uh, why this vaccine? Why suddenly this? Like, this has got to be political for you. This has got to be something else. It's got to be a source of disobedience. Uh, and and right. I, I want to dispel that rumor. First off, so many service members, myself included, received most of those required vaccines when we were children and completely incapable of giving consent to a vaccine. Secondly, so many service members had no idea. I don't think anybody, I personally did, and I know so mm -hmm. many others, had no idea that fetal cell lines were even used uh, in vaccines right. or shockingly other projects too. I want to read you something real quick about how some of these fetal cells are actually produced. And this is what I think is, is most alarming for what's going on. So I'll give you a little background real quick. HEK-293, human embryonic kidney cell 293, uh, is what's used in the production, not necessarily production, excuse me, but testing of the COVID vaccines, uh, Moderna and Pfizer most notably. Uh, Johnson & Johnson is something different, but it's since been discontinued. I don't think it's really necessary to talk about. But I'll read you something from Crisis Magazine um, on the COVID vaccine and the Catholic conscience. And this is how these human embryonic kidney cells were harvested. And so I'm quoting it now. To harvest a viable embryonic kidney for this purpose, sufficiently healthy children, old enough to have adequately developed kidneys, must be removed from the womb, alive, typically by C-section, and have their kidneys cut out. This must take place without anesthesia for the child, as it would lessen the viability of the organs. So instead of, instead of you know, a human child uh, who deserves to be held by its, by its mother and brought into this world through God's creation is instead torn out of the womb and literally dissected without anesthesia. I can't imagine what kind of pain that child must have felt. And so this is serious. I don't, I don't think this is something that you can kind of just blow off as something that is mild or something that service members are being hysterical about. That's horrific stuff. And I know so many service members now, when they've learned that this kidney cell and others are within other products, they've since completely stopped using them. Uh, and I think that's really important. I personally have. I do my research now because I, I know. And so these service members know now and they've been educated. And I hope so many others now because of this podcast are educated about it. And, and the religious leadership, although they might claim that this vaccine is okay, have, have been very clear that those with conscious-based objections are, are okay to have those and should be respected. And I'll, I'll quote here uh, the Archbishop of the Military Diocese uh, who said that, in a letter, the denial of religious accommodations, punitive or adverse personal actions taken against those who raise earnest, conscious-based objections would be contrary to federal law and morally reprehensible. That's the Catholic Archbishop of the United States military saying that. So uh, it's, this, I think it's a farce. I think it's, um, or excuse me, not a farce, but I, I think it's a lie to say uh, that religious leaders uh, are fully supporting this vaccine and think that you're obligated to get it. And I think that's really important that people know and understand that this is this is not this is a big deal for us, and I think we have every right to to be serious about how we feel on these vaccines. Wow, well, excellent points there. I'm glad I asked you that question and and that you've uh, brought that up. Listen to this. Uh, I couldn't help but think of uh, something I'd recently read in a book 
wholly unrelated to what we are talking about, and it it is uh, admittedly philosophical in nature, but it's about integrity. And one of the, uh, it's the first of the Air Force's core values is integrity. Integrity first, we always say. That's what I've learned that ever since I've been at the Air Force Academy. Integrity first. Uh, and we've got a tremendous number of our service members who are filled with integrity that we're pushing to the curb right now. And, and the reason I want to read this is because I, I resonate personally with this man's description of what integrity looks like to him. Uh, we tend to talk about colloquially this idea that, oh, you do the right thing when no one's looking. Uh, well, fine. That's, that's okay, too. But this is, uh, listen very carefully to this. Um, in philosophy, the word integrity signifies much more than, ordina- than the ordinary word honesty. Honesty may be, on- may be only acceptance of certain standards of right and wrong and obedience thereto, but integrity is honesty illumined by inward realization. Integrity is the irresistible, I like that word too because it's in my book title. Integrity is the irresistible inward impulse to do that which is wise, noble, and beautiful. It lifts the life above blind obedience to man-made law and establishes every thought and action upon the foundation of abiding justice. Integrity. You service members who are listening, learn something about the core values. Integrity also implies perfect consistency between inward impulse and outward action. And I think that's why I've heard so many service members who have felt compulsed to take the vaccine have now regretted it. There's a lot of people, there's many more thousands who are in that boat who thought, well, crap, I didn't really want to do this, but I didn't think it through and I felt pressured because they've been forced to live out of harmony with their inward impulse. And that, that creates a kind of uh, dissonance that's uh, it's uncomfortable for people. And <clears throat> that's a terrible position for the military to put its service members in. But it continues. The outward life is dominated Again, in the life of integrity, the outward life is dominated by inner conviction. And there is no interval of difference between the beauty in the soul and the nobility in the outward deed. Integrity is the living of truth, or possibly for the novice, the living of that which is nearest to the truth that he knows. A man who believes in fine spiritual principles and then lives a code of action inconsistent with these principles lacks integrity, even though he may be honest in his weights and measures. And with that, I want to say uh, publicly thanks to John uh, for being a man of integrity. I've uh, recognized this not only in our interview today, uh, but in the months that we've occasionally been chatting together on the phone. Uh, I recognize it. I know you're principled, and thank you for uh, properly aligning your outward conduct with your inner impulse. So that said, I'll give you the last word, and uh, we'll wrap up. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that, that's, that's wonderful. It's beautifully written. Uh, and I hope that's how all of us that are, are dealing with this vaccine mandate conducting ourselves. Uh, that's really the goal ultimately is in that, you know, we're just here to continue serving. We're here to do the right thing and we're here to live to our commitment that we swore an oath to. And for enlisted personnel that have a slightly different oath, they're still obligated to the Constitution as well and they're doing just the same thing. Um, you know, I, I think of, uh, a similar quote, if I can keep it in the fighter pilot vein of Robin Olds, where he said, a fighter pilot is attitude. It is cockiness. It is aggressiveness. Maybe not us. It is self-confidence. It is a streak of rebelliousness and it is competitiveness. 
but there's something else. There's a spark. There's a desire to do good, to do well in the eyes of your peers and in your own mind. And I think uh, ultimately we're trying our best to encompass the idea of doing good. Because I think in the Air Force and in the military in general, uh, everyone is pretty type A personality. And I think that quote kind of hits it on the head. Uh, but I want to emphasize more importantly that we're not being rebellious here. Uh, we're simply just standing up for our beliefs uh, and, and doing what we can. But I will say in terms of doing what you can and making a plea to everyone uh, who's listening here to please speak up. If you're in the military, active duty, reserve, or guard, uh, and you know service members that are in the same position as myself and the tens of thousands of others, help them out. Talk to them, be with them, and speak up for them. Because the more those who are vaccinated speak out, the better chance we have of really letting people realize that this is a big deal. And also speak up to your command about the national security implications that we're seeing right now, which are drastic in a time when tensions with China and Russia and Ukraine and so many other places are all escalating. We need every service member we can get. If you're a civilian, I encourage you to share this podcast, uh, share my words, share Matt's words, and share with your representatives, especially, and with donors of representatives, that this is a real issue and that I believe that it's everyone's obligation, especially in Congress, to, to speak up about this and at least look into it. And that's really what I'm asking the members of Congress and our elected representatives to do is just ask the questions and look into it. And the same with our Department of Defense leadership is just look into it. And if you can financially support organizations that are doing their best to help us out. I know that the STARS is a great organization that's been doing a lot of good for service members and uh, as well as the Defending Republic. STARS is uh, S-T-A-R-R-S dot U-S. Uh, Defending the Republic is actively litigating. Uh, and so many other organizations, if you just simply Google DOD vaccine lawsuit, I'm sure you can find these organizations and potentially consider helping us out, especially in the court sphere, because that's really uh, where a lot of service members are finally getting their protection that they need is from the courts. Uh, and so if we can get that protection from Congress as well, I think we'll be in really good shape. And I think uh, you as the listener can do a lot of good. You can be the hero in the story uh, and help us all out. Yeah, that's... Uh... Great that you've pointed that out. I, I'd like to encourage people to be engaged as well with uh, their elected officials. I will send a link to uh, this episode and this interview uh, to Senator Tom Cotton's office, uh, with whom I was speaking earlier today, and I will send it to the Heritage Foundation, and I'm going to send it to some attorneys that I know who are probably, some of whom are very uh, well aware of some of the things that are going on. Um, in our military right now, but I'll, I'll circulate this as widely as possible. And I'm also going to try and flood the military, um, airwaves with this as well. And, uh, our service members, young and old enlisted and officer can watch how an active duty service member, John Bowes, uh, is an example of conducting himself respectfully without criticizing the chain of command, without criticizing elected officials, which is his obligation, but simply standing for his principles and living a life of integrity. Thanks for joining us today, John. I've uh, sure been grateful to chat with you. Thank you, Matt. It's been a blessing. If you uh, like what you're hearing or seeing, and if you watch today, you certainly liked what you're seeing with our uh, Robin Olds fighter pilot mustache, First Lieutenant John Bowes, uh, then be sure to subscribe to the podcast, uh, subscribe to the YouTube channel, Rumble channel, and be sure to pass it on to your family and friends. See you next time.